Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Ugh, Biggie Smalls don't even get me started. Someone's like, oh, uh, my birthday is March 5th. And was, that's close to March 9th, which is the day I got my period, which is also the day that Biggie Smalls died. I'm just <laughs> crazy. <laughs> just like, on the day. Like, I don't know why I need to tell everybody that, but I do. This is Death, Sex, and Money. It's just that when he was younger, he used to lie about his mother being alive. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. What about all those condoms I got you? Hmm? We use them. And need to talk about more. Gambling is not your problem. I'm Anna Sale. If you know Gabourey Sidibe, it's probably from Precious, the 2009 movie about rape, physical abuse, and poverty in one young woman's life. Gabourey was 24 when she got the role. It was her first acting job, and it earned her an Oscar nomination. I knew that whatever Precious was going to be, whatever the film was going to be, that it was going to change my life. And it had better. It changed my life for the better. Like, I really, really wanted that because that's what I prayed for. Did it initially? Yeah, it does. Yeah, my life is so much better. Look. With every anyone who has who has their dream job, I'm sure there are things that they hate about it. Before I was an actress, nobody said anything about my body. They did when I was a kid, but once I became, you know, a person when I was 18, 19 in college and in real life, nobody said anything about my body ever. And um, being an actress allowed people to then to begin to say things about my body again. Gabourey is responding right now to all that talk with a new book. It's called This Is Just My Face, Try Not to Stare. It's about her life after Precious and before when she was a teenager growing up in New York. The 90s were popping, okay? And remember, I don't know if you remember TRL, Total of course Press I do. Live. I would cut school and we would go down, if, if NSYNC were going to be there, and you could just stand under the window and watch them. And there were so many things to show up to, and it felt like... It was like a lifestyle. It was like what I was doing. InSync <laughs> was your extracurricular activity. Exactly. InSync was my extracurricular activity. It made me feel like I had things to do when everything else was so screwed up. Gabourey's parents divorced when she was nine. Her dad drove a cab. Her mom was a teacher. But she left that job when she realized she could earn at least the same amount of money performing in the subways. 
My mom is a really, she's a phenomenal singer, but when she started singing the subway, it was hard to watch. Because at that point, my mom, my brother, and I, we all shared two twin beds um, in a room at my aunt's house. And it felt like no matter how talented she was, we still had to go back and sleep in these twin beds. Mm. That we were still going to walk away poor, even though she was really, really talented. And so my brother and I would just kind of wander off by ourselves. And I'd find a book and... There was a bookstore in Penn Station where they would just let me come in and sit down on the floor in the hall. But these escapes were temporary. Gabrielle was struggling. After her parents split, she started having panic attacks almost daily. I was crying and sweating and and not being able to breathe. And this would happen, you know, sometimes first period in junior high or, mm. you, you know, during math in elementary school or, you know, recess or something. And I remember... Uh, when I was in seventh grade, there was like, you know, parent-teacher night or something. And so my mom and I went down to the school and my seventh grade homeroom teacher, Mr. Maloff, who was really kind of too sexy for a science teacher. When <laughs> <laughs> he was telling my mom, he was like, you know, she cries a lot. She cries too much. Um, you know, she lets the other kids really get to her and she needs to thicken her skin. And she, you know, this is really a problem. And my mom kind of seemed to be embarrassed by it. And I was extremely embarrassed that my teacher, who was so sexy, had to tell my mom that I was crying too much and that the both of them were looking at me as though I actually had some control in the matter and I didn't. Hmm. There are a lot of things going on, and so neither of my parents saw me. They just couldn't see me or who I was or, or what was happening to me or what, what I was going through. Throughout her teens, Gabrielle had anxiety, depression, and bulimia. She says making herself throw up gave her a sense of relief. She graduated high school and started taking college courses in psychology. She also started acting in school productions— but she still felt lost. All of my friends are, you know, hooking up with guys and going to parties and going on dates and having boyfriends and things like that. And I wasn't doing any of that. And I said, okay, that's what you have to do to build to be normal. Because right now you don't feel normal, but you will feel normal this as soon as you become normal. And that's what you got to do to become normal. You you describe what you call the your hoe face. <laughs> <laughs> I was just doing it to do it. Like, I just... And it's not... I mean, this sounds like... The hoe face sounds like there was a line outside of my bedroom, and there wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. And it wasn't like, I'll take every, I'll take anybody on. It wasn't like that. It, I just kind of hung out with people that did not um, serve or deserve me. And are these... At that point in your life, like, where were where were you meeting these people? Parties? Oh, my God. Uh, anyone who lives in New York City <laughs> that lives in the hood knows that all you have to do is walk to the train and people will yell at you. And people will like, hey, hey, girl, come here. Like, you know, there were a lot of like, yo, shorty, yo, shorty. And so that's how I would meet people on the way to the train, the classy way. Well, I imagine it felt, I mean, you described earlier that as it, when you were like in middle school and high school, it felt like you weren't being seen. And that made you feel seen. Walking to the train, having people yeah, notice you. Exactly. When I was in junior high and high school, and you know, the the thing was 
you know, I went to school with all of these, like, beautiful Puerto Rican and Dominican girls, and, you know, and they had all the boyfriends, and, you know, they were the, the ones that the boys wanted, and I was, um, I was really funny with a great personality, and so, and so all the boys that I liked just wanted to be my best friend, and, you know, but the guys that were standing, you know, on the block on my way to the train station had no idea if they wanted, if if I had a great personality or if they wanted to be my best friend. They know they knew that they wanted to, like, kind of be inside me, which is such a gross thing to say. Oh, my God. But uh, they, you know, they wanted something from me. Whether I wanted to give, them, give it to them didn't matter to me because what I really wanted was to be wanted. So how long did that phase last? Ah, uh, less than a year. That's a very short hoe face for a young woman. It's a short hoe. I mean, like, yeah. Like, it's a, it's such a short hoe face. It's more like a hoe you know? Like, it's not a full phase. That phase was long enough for Gabrielle to realize she needed help. She was on Medicaid, which covered antidepressants and therapy five days a week for six months, both on her own and in group sessions. I was the youngest person in the class by, like, a lot. Everyone else was, you know, in their 40s. And it was very strange um, because I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't, you know, deal with my life. But I, I always imagined that by the time I was 40, I could. <laughs> and it was really, and this is, I mean, this is no shade on those people that were in that group. I just, it, I was devastated to learn that I wasn't going to magically be a better person by the time I was 25. But that's something I had to learn. <laughs> something that I had to, that it doesn't, I had to learn that what I was going through, I couldn't grow out of. And that's a really good lesson for me to have learned when I was 21. I'm so grateful that I didn't have to sit in, in sickness and sit in depression until I was dead. Gabrielle decided not to go back to school after this. She needed money. Her therapist suggested she try telemarketing. Gabrielle took her advice, sort of. I found a job as a phone sex operator. I think my my audition call, the first call, like this guy is like, ugh, my dick is so hard or whatever. And I had no idea what to do with a hard dick. Like, and yeah, I wasn't a virgin, but like, what do I know? I don't know. I certainly, I don't know what to do in person. I don't know how to describe it over the phone. But what was great is I'm on the phone. You can't see me. And so I would do most of my calls with a Cosmo magazine and also a, it was called like Cherry Pie or something. Hmm. Some like porno magazine uh-huh. where like all these, I mean, it's just like photographs, but it's, you know, graphic in nature. And so it was really easy to just describe what I saw. Do you think that job helped you as a performer? Definitely. Certainly, because I was never, um, almost never was I a black girl on the phone. Hmm. Uh, never. And, like, I want to be very frank about this. The people that ran the company, most, I want to say 95% of them are are black women. But we were not allowed to have black voices on the phone. You'd have a white voice. Um, What's your white voice sound like? <laughs> Pretty much this. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, okay, so there are a bunch of different lines. Um, and so I got to try on a lot of different voices. Like for a college girl, my voice would be more like this, 
you know, like I, you know, I would just like yeah. end every sentence with an upward inflection because I'm just kind of like I'm really cute and stuff like that, but I'm also like a little bit dumb. <laughs> 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 but never a black girl. Although there's a line. So there, like, I'm telling you, there's like hundreds of lines that filter all into one company. And I was horrible at the black girl calls. Huh. Why? Because of racism. Because I am a black girl. And so I refuse to, to talk like this so that you could believe that I'm a black girl and have an attitude because that is rude because I be reading this shit. So, like, that felt really. Oh, I, did, I mean, I would not yeah. do that. So you're both like learning about what it is to be an object of sexual desire and you're learning about being a performer without your body being a part of the equation. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's, gosh, that's a trip. Yeah, what did that feel like? I felt like I could be really, really powerful as long as you could not see me. Which is a really interesting thing to come from when you become an actress. To go from, you know, this brunette who's really cute with, like, a heart-shaped butt and, you know, really perky titties. To go from that to, like, being the face of, you know, dark-skinned black girl from the hood as Precious, you know, who, you know, is a sexual abuse survivor. <sighs> I think that was heavier um, than I allowed myself to know it was at the time. Coming up, Gabourey talks about getting that role just as she was settling in at the phone sex company. And so it felt like this is what I'm supposed to be, but it also felt like a trap because everyone gets a girl number. And my girl number was 1266 because I was the 1,266th employee hired by the entire company. But number two was still there. Number five, number 20, number 100, they were all still there because they were trapped. Thank you to all of you who submitted life advice questions for our live show last week with comedian Hurry Kondabolu and his mom, Uma. It was really fun, and they gave really good advice. Just get to know each other, and once you trust he has a sound judgment, he means right. well. Then decide. And if he, and if he like, flips out about this, well then, you know... Then he's not the guy. Right, and find out whether you can get it annulled. <laughs> We'll have that in the podcast feed next week, or you can watch the video now on our Facebook page. An email came in after that show from a listener who we think you might be able to help out. Marlena is 46 years old, and she's on her way to becoming a stepmother to three boys. She's never been married or had kids before. She's wondering how other people have handled that transition to becoming a step-parent. She wrote, it seems like such a culturally fraught relationship, and that there are so many ways to have things go wrong. So send us any lessons you've learned about step-parenthood, what you've done right or what you've done wrong. We'll put your advice in our newsletter next week. If you don't already get it, go to deathsexmoney.org newsletter to subscribe. Or just text the word newsletter to 69866. We love watching you help each other out in the death, sex, and money community, which, by the way, includes Gabrielle Sidibe. 
I'm such a huge fan. Oh, oh. I've I've listened to almost nearly every single episode of Death, are Sex, you, and Money. Are you serious? That's awesome. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. In the eight years since Gabrielle Sidibe was cast as Precious, she's been working steadily in big-budget movies like Tower Heist and on TV, in American Horror Story, The Big C, and Empire. It's something Gabrielle never could have imagined when she went to an open audition for Precious and then got called back to meet director Lee Daniels. And after, you know, half an hour maybe 40 minutes of him just talking to me, just interviewing me. He just gave me the role without a third audition. He just gave it to me. I was just praying that whoever and whatever I was supposed to be would begin. Because I had a feeling that, like, being— Begin, you said. Yeah, to begin. I just wanted who I am and what I was supposed to be and my purpose to begin. I mean, Precious was a huge cultural phenomenon. You're nominated for an Oscar. You're all over red carpets everywhere. And you are being consumed as a product of media and talked about and picked apart. How did you deal with that? I'm so happy I got that whole pesky panic attack thing, (laughs) you know, out of the way. But it was really... You know, it's really it was really hurtful, and it it took a it took a while for me to learn that um, I was never going to out out talent. I was never going to out talent the fact that I should be skinny, in uh, you know, in somebody else's eyes. That I was never going to be funny enough to make people forget that I'm fat. It's not something I always say. You know, confidence is not something that you can set and forget. You have to work on it every day to put it on like lipstick. There will always be be comments. The internet is not going away. Thank God, because I'm always bored, but still. <laughs> it's never going away. Dealing with it has got to come from inside me. Gabrielle decided to get weight loss surgery about a year ago. She'd considered it earlier, in her early 20s, but had just finished treatment for her eating disorder. Doctors told her she wasn't a good candidate then because surgery can cause you to throw up after eating and could trigger her bulimia. I remember thinking I really screwed myself, you know. I really screwed myself out of not being, you know, I'm no longer able to have this surgery because I really messed up. Um, and I stopped thinking about it for a while, but I thought about it again when I was 27 because I I think this, what I, people think that I, people think that I don't care that I am bigger, that I don't notice 
And I've been fat since I was, you know, very young, four or five years old. Um, the bulk of my family is big. I know. Um, I'm worried. Strangers think that they're wor- they're more worried about me than I am. It's like, can you chill? I'm very aware of what's going on with me. And people think that I'm lazy, but I have been working. Lee gave me my first trainer, like, the day he hired me. He's like, we'll get you a trainer. Um, he's like, we got to get you on a regimen and we got to get you healthy. And we'll, you know, and he was sending me to yoga instructors and sending me to dietitians because he's like, not only do I want to get you through the filming of this movie, I want you to be a star after. I want this to be your first of many roles. And so he's, and he's, you know, he's on my team. He's on my side. He always has been. But we had to do reshoots. And what happened, I remember I came in one day and the pants that they had for me, like, was just falling off of me. Um, And so they had to put pins in them uh, to keep them on. And he was like, so, hey, baby, we have reshoots coming up in about three weeks. How much weight have you lost? He's like, can you just stop working out? Stay right where you are because we can't have you lose any more weight. And I think that if you ate a little bit of cake... That, you know, we won't be in so much trouble. And how did so, that, wait, getting that instruct, like, how did that feel? Because you're, you're doing all this work, you've changed your habits, you're losing weight. Yeah, it was, um, I don't think it was initially devastating. Like, <laughs> like at that moment, I probably felt kind of dope about yeah. it. Like, I kind of felt like, yes, <laughs> lost so much weight. They hate, you know, how much weight I lost because, yes, like, I kind of felt, like, really proud of myself Um, because I also didn't realize, uh, I didn't realize that stopping and backsliding would be a fall down the mountain, you know. Hmm. I gained all the weight back and then some um, and then even more some. How did you decide to get the surgery and... How did you understand the risk that you were taking? So it happened very quickly. I knew that the, um, well, one of the risks are death is definitely a thing um, to worry about, different complications. And, you know, also I, whether I want it to or not, uh, I am a fat actress. And that's like kind of the realm that I'm in, even though... My career is not about my body, but that was definitely uh, a worry that I had. I didn't tell my manager or my agents. I didn't tell anyone. Um, oh, you did it in secret. I didn't. I had the surgery in May, and my mom didn't know till September. Why? I had I because I a few reasons. I had made up my mind, and I didn't want space for anybody else's mind to be made up about it. And so I wanted my opinion and my comfort and my safety to be the only thing that mattered surrounding the surgery. How would you describe your relationship with your family when it comes to money? I mean, what I'm envisioning, as you said that, I envision myself standing on a patch of grass um, out in a field, and there's a brick wall um, next to me, and on the other side of that brick wall is my family. Hmm. 
and it's like, you know, eight feet across, but they can come around and I can go around there, but I won't. <laughs> How come? I, I really, you know, it's so odd. Money is so odd and it's so strange and um, it continues to befuddle me um, because I have some, I'm not rich, I have some, but my family has the same amount as it as they did when I was um, living with them. And if they ask me for money, I'm just as upset as if they don't ask me for money and need it. And so it's a it's a very strange thing. It's very strange, and it's I'm still trying to work out my feelings around it. But um, but I want I want my family to have a better life, and I want them to be good and I want them to not worry but the idea of them not worrying fills me with so much worry because even if I like help them out of a jam or you know pay the rent or this and that you know I I'm so scared about whether or not I'll be able to do this the next time you know I don't know what will happen who can I turn to to help me out because there's not one person in my family that I can depend on the way they can depend on me, financially speaking. Fabry feels like she's got enough money now, but it took a while to feel that way. She says in her book she earned about $30,000 from Precious, and it went fast. By the time Oscar season came around, she was walking alongside the world's most famous actors on red carpets. With zero money in the bank. <laughs> yeah. And not that I spent it on frivolous things. I just didn't spend it on anything good. I couldn't buy a car. didn't even drive then. I couldn't buy a house or an apartment. Like, that was insane. And so I think that I, what I did with the money is I got out of credit card debt. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> End of list. <laughs> <laughs> I had a debt. This is so stupid. I had a debt from Crunch Gym uh-huh. from a membership that I signed up for. And, like, I remember the, the bill wasn't, the debt wasn't even that big, but it definitely went to, like, a collection agency. But it was, like, maybe, it was, like, $3,000 or something. And I remember the day I paid it off because the creditor, like, she would, you know, call me once a month. And I would, I was doing, like, a, you know, a monthly thing, you know. And I called her and I was like, I forget her name. Let's call her Lisa. I was like, Lisa, I'm going to pay the whole thing off now. And she was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And she's like, what happened? Did you get a promotion? And I was like, girl, I got a movie. And she's like, what? <laughs> And she was like, that is so good for you. She was so, Lisa was so happy for me. (laughs) I love picturing Lisa going to see Precious. She must have been so proud. I hope she was. (laughs) But that is all I did with the money. That's what I did with it. Yeah. That's Gabourey Sidibe. Her new memoir is called This Is Just My Face, Try Not to Stare. You can also still see her on the show Empire. And check out her turn as Ella Fitzgerald on Comedy Central's Drunk History. We loved it, and thank you, Will, too. The link is up on our Facebook page. 
Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm based at the Center for Investigative Reporting in Emeryville, California. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. We had help this week from Derek John and Destry Sibley. The Reverend John DeLore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death, Sex, Money. And again, subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Go to deathsexmoney.org slash newsletter. And we are still collecting your stories about student loans. Write us an email or record a voice memo and send it to us at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. Gabourey says she will always be a New Yorker at heart, but she also loves a swimming pool. I swim. I can swim a lap in 21 seconds. So when she bought a place, it was in L.A. Oh, my God, I'm so fancy. I have a white picket fence in Bougainvillea Tree. You do? <laughs> and I'm embarrassed by it, honestly. I'm like, <laughs> the friend comes to my house, and I'm like, yeah, I'm so, it's the one with the white picket fence. I mean, never, I mean, it's stupid. Never mind. It's so, like, just, it's the white picket fence. And, like, all of my friends are like, well, it's just a little on the nose, you know? I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 